So this is the second episode that we've done. It is an in their invite only events. We share proprietary research and information. You'll notice that the last one um, we share decks and data and things like that. So it's a much of a different concept. We're also moving in this invite only format. And so we send out an invite uh, and this is just testing a concept. I had a concept where like, hey, what if we made it a smaller confined group? People had to sign up and then we'd send it out last minute um, and are getting a really great response. So appreciate you all being here. A second piece to incentivize the live, this video will not be shared. And so in order to get all this information, you actually have to be here live in order to get the value. We will put the video inside the vault, which is a product that we have in a beta. We sent that out and in the email you sort of saw this is in a beta. There's probably 25 or 30 companies in there right now. Um, and if, so if you're interested in being a part of that, feel free to um, drop it into uh, the chat or send, reply to the email that we sent out. And we can talk through more about how you get access to this and uh, all the other additional information and things that we're putting out in that platform. Um, and so last time we talked about the hybrid attribution framework. So this dark social data, how that led us to this idea of the attribution mirage, where the way companies measure the success of their marketing is biased and myopic to capturing demand. They need a new way to, to measure creating demand. And then we talked about a hybrid attribution framework that companies could literally go and take away and implement inside of their business in 24 hours for free and get tremendous value in, in customer insights to make a much more informed strategy decisions and communicate back to executives what's going on. This episode and this event, we're going to be talking about our pipe framework. This is actually something that I've been operating with since 2017 and, and in 2019 started to talk about it publicly. And then over the past two or three years by executing this on more than 100 companies, um, B2B companies, we've been able to formalize this into an actual process and how you could implement it inside of Salesforce or HubSpot inside of your CRM and be able to use it as an alternative way to, to measure and optimize the success of your marketing. Um, and so I'm excited to, to share this a little bit of context, how I got here, how I got here was that in 2017, I, jo I joined a company at that point, um, that company and the marketing team was mainly focused on events and sales enablement and field marketing. And while I, and then if we were going to do any type of quote unquote lead generation, it was let's get webinar attendees and then send them out to the reps. Let's scan badges at trade shows and then send them out to the reps or let's buy lists and then send it out to the reps. And we're basically taking cold, low intent MQLs and passing them to our sales team, our most expensive resource in the company, and then having our sales team work a, a high volume of leads that don't want to buy leading to low efficiency. And what happens when you do that? Salespeople are super smart. You do that, they call 10 or 15 of those people and they say, there's, there's a way better way for me to hit my quota by doing this myself, not following up with the people that marketing are sending us. And then that's sort of a reputation that happens in marketing at a lot of companies uh, previously. So using that information, a couple of the things that we started to do, I actually called a couple of these uh, leads and I got to feel. So I got to feel what does it feel like as a playing the sales professional role to go and call a couple of these people that we pass to them every day. And using that ex exact tactic as a marketer, just to feel it can give you the ins like the quick insight to say, and I think executives should do this too, the quick insight to say, this isn't the, what we want to be sending to our sales team. And it's so crazy how few marketers actually go through that to feel it for themselves. And so we made a decision that the only people that we're going to pass to sales 
are ICP qualified accounts that declared intent to buy from us. That's typically requested a demo, got pricing, inbound call into our uh, office looking to get a demo or other type of buying decision. And that was all that we were optimizing for inside of our quote unquote lead gen or like capturing demand system. What happens then is you typically have a lower volume of total leads that you pass to sales. Those leads converted at a significantly higher rate, leading to higher sales productivity, better alignment with sales, and then all the additional time that sales was wasting, spending time calling people that didn't want to buy. Now they can actually go out, build relationships, work and expand current accounts, prospect into their top 100 or top gold accounts. There's so many additional things that sales professionals could do on their own if they didn't have so much meetings, demos, travel to accounts that don't aren't interested in buying right now. And then as we started to scale the program, and as I started to look deeper into the data, I found so many interesting nuances and insights. As a marketer, when you get pressured to as from the executive team to say, show me how our $10,000, $50,000 a month is driving a positive ROI, and you get forced to defend that, you actually look at the data in a whole different way, which then leads you to doing a bunch of different stuff. Um, and so I was lucky to be in an organization that challenged me to do that. I learned so much. I eventually, like, I think that I'm one of the strongest RevOps professionals out there when it comes to analytics, simply because of how much time I spent looking at the data, calculating metrics and figuring out things that other people aren't challenged to figure out. Another sort of gap that I see from when RevOps is the one owning analytics is that RevOps is not interfacing with the customer. So they have a very like sort of narrow look at what's actually happening and they lose all this context. The reason that I came to a lot of these conclusions is because I heard from customers what was going on, which then led me to look at the data in a specific and different way. And so I'm going to start getting into some of the slides who um, expecting this will take somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes. We're going to have a Q&A session afterwards. So if you have questions, don't feel like you need to hold them to, to the end. Drop them in the chat and we're going to queue them up so you can either come on or we'll read the question. And uh, let's get into it. 225 people love this. What a turnout. Great to be here, everyone. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Cool. So I'm just going to get into a little bit of background first. So you all know sort of like where we're coming from. Um, the first piece is that um, we are officially in the dark social era. And so if you look a majority of the time that people have uh, expect specifically executives have worked into inside of B2B companies, they were operating inside of what we're calling the analog buying era. Buyers buy in an analog way, typically with a sales professional inside of meetings in order to make decisions because of the lack of availability of information online. B2B companies were not enabling their buyers with digital materials at that point. Um, there weren't review sites and things like that, uh, at least not prominently. Um, digital and social channels were not being used heavily by B2B buyers to access their peers, to understand what their peers were doing and what they were prioritizing. So they mainly interface with sales for a majority of the customer journey in an analog way. That could be field sales, it could be inside sales. Um, the point is that we actually sit on a meeting together and, and uh, operate that way as opposed to the buyer doing a lot of things independently. Then we entered this era 
of web, of an, a website era where buyers now have way more access to information. So the information that they used to go and they used to get from a sales professional and say, I need pricing, I need a brochure, I need cut sheets, I need uh, like an API, like integration sort of documentation. And they would get that from sales or a solutions consultant in an analog way. Then they would just go onto the internet and whether that's through a company's website or a different third party website, they would be able to access that information, which fundamentally changed how buyers buy. And that started to actually evolve a lot more into what people called the inbound era, where it was a lot of SEO, where people now realized they had access to information. They would go out and search in Google and other place or other place on the, on the internet to find it. And then it's always sort of been happening in the background. I can remember back in 2017, like when you ask buyers how they heard about us in person, they're like, Rob DeBlossi from Seattle Children's Hospital told me that we, they used their product and had a ton of success. So now I want to talk about using it at my company. And so dark social has been happening forever, whether that's direct word of mouth or Rob was actually really popular on Facebook at that point and had a big audience and also spoke at conferences that weren't tracked and all the other things that happened in dark social. But we've had a massive acceleration since the COVID era. And so since 2020, there was fundamental changes that we're never going backwards on. The, peop, the, the 50 year old executive that wasn't using LinkedIn, that wasn't being a part of a community, that wasn't going to a online event like this once a week, they didn't do any of those things in 2019. And then given what happened in COVID, they got forced to become digitally native and now they do all those things. And so there was a rapid acceleration of buyers learning how to use dark social channels in order to get information that they trust more from directly from their peers. And so this is sort of the evolution of how people have been buying. And we're basically in a digital buying era where you, buyers have access to information and they have access to their peers and they need very little interaction and engagement with sales except to complete the transaction typically, but they can do all of the actual buying independently for the most part. Um, this is a little bit more descriptive and then we're gonna get into the details. So dark social through the scale and maturity of the internet has created tons of different word of mouth channels where, where buyers can share information, discuss business priorities, validate decisions with peers and overall make, make buying decisions that don't get tracked by attribution software and don't create intent data due to the privacy policies of these platforms. Some of those include social networks like LinkedIn or TikTok, content platforms like YouTube or Spotify, communities, Slack or Discord, third party events like the one that we're doing right now. If I shouted out a tool right now, there would be no tracking at all to that, but it would be highly impactful for all the people that are live right now. The people that listen to the podcast afterwards, see the micro clips on LinkedIn, zero tracking to all that. And like a million people would see that if I, if I published it, it would, given all the reach that we have across those channels. Um, third party meetups, whether that's a physical event, the inbound HubSpot inbound conference is going on right now. There's tons of like actual physical dark social activity, just raw word of mouth happening at that conference that isn't being tracked. And then a huge one of internal company communications, how whether it's in a Zoom meeting or uh, through Slack, like people take my content and share it in Slack and they tell me about how they do it multiple times a week, every week. And there's no tracking to any of that, but the customer is literally taking my content and giving it to all the decision makers inside of their company, highly impactful and not being tracked. So this is these are things that buyers are doing. If I just read that out to you and explained it, you're like, yeah, these are a lot of the things that I use to collect information before I'm interested in actually buying something, whether you do it consciously or subconsciously. The second effect that's going on, and I know this will resonate with people, is that like, who here wants to talk to a sales professional when you don't want to buy their product? 
zero people on this call want to do that. I'm sure that there's a ton of great sales professionals that people are friends with. So it's not no knock on that, but just generally it's a waste. You feel like it's a waste of your time to talk to someone about buying something that you don't want to buy. Um, and so it creates a really, uh, frictionous friction relationship between, um, sales and the buyer when sales is talking to people that don't want to buy buyers instead want to do a lot of the independent research on their own. They want to be able to gather information. They want to be able to get their peers and people on board by sharing content internally. They want to be able to access pricing. They want to understand what other people are using this. What success are they having? What do my peers and people I trust say about this product versus alternatives? They want to do all that stuff on their own independently, simply because they trust the information that they get from those sources more than the information that they get from a sales professional. And so it's our job to enable buyers to go through that process on their own, whether that's through it traditionally falls into marketing. I like much better thinking about it as demand creation and buyer enablement. Um, and then, then it could span across functions. Your customer success team could do this. Your subject matter experts could do this. Your executive team could, could feasibly do this. And so it's less about what department owns it. And it's more about what are we trying to accomplish the way that B2B buyers buy compared to the way that, um, companies try to sell right now is in massive friction because companies continue to try to sell in an analog era way when buyers want to buy digitally, which creates friction. It creates friction because companies use a sales professional to try and do all of the demand creation and all of the demand capture instead of leveraging other different places to get the buyer to when they're interested in buying and then to engage with a sales professional. And it leads to like this type of the symptoms that people feel. I know this is going to resonate with people like long sales cycles, low win rates, misalignment between marketing and sales, marketing's hitting their like lead target or whatever SQL target, whatever people set set um, and sales is missing quota or, or continuing to underperform and overall just low ROI. And the, the reason is simple. It's because the way company, the way the company is trying to sell is not aligned with how the buyer wants to buy. So one of the big things and how uh, how I went through it in 2017, as I explained this at the beginning, is that our company was operating basically as a sales enablement function in addition to some like scattered lead generation programs like a trade show badge scan or webinars or things like that. Um, and I was going to put lead gen slash demand capture, but this is sim just simply lead gen. Lead gen, we're collecting contact information so our sales can try to sell to people that haven't declared intent to buy versus demand capture. We are capturing demand that's being created where buyers have intent to buy. So there's actually a distinction here and most companies still operate in the lead gen bucket to collect buyers that don't want to buy yet and then try and have their sales team convince the buyer to buy. Um, alternatively, by creating demand, whether through whatever means that you do so that the buyer can buy independently, get buyer, their peers on board, and then approach you when they want to buy, creates a much more aligned uh, process with how the buyer wants to buy. So now we're getting into some of the tactics. Feel free to, uh, to really go deep here. I'm going to have a, at the end, like some, some recommendations about what you could do, but I'm going to talk through a couple of the core processes that we use in order to tease this out. And you can go into your data and you can pull that. You can, you can do it yourself. You can get your RevOps team to do it. Whoever can pull it. You can get this report done in less than an hour 
and be able to have these insights that you can go back and use to decide what are we actually going to do. And I'm highly confident that you're going to see similar patterns to what I see because I've run this analysis at so many companies and see the exact same thing at every one, because this isn't a difference between one company or the other. It's that the, the consistency with how a buyer wants to buy is across the board. So it's not like one company is doing better than the other. It's that when like a buyer requests a demo, regardless of who they are, they're, and they're qualified, they're way more likely to buy than someone that you cold call off a list. And so let's get into it. I hope people can, can see this enough. Um, so what we have here is we, we have a process that we call split the funnel. You take, um, based on the campaign source, this is using Salesforce ter terminology. So the campaign source, which is typically what did the buyer convert on, which then triggered a sales conversation or a sales meeting. So some of the things here, request a demo, outbound call, they filled out the contact sales form, they came to a webinar and then we followed up, we scanned their badge at a trade show, they got introduced to us from a partner. So those are some of the different examples here. And then you can literally, you can get some of this data from Salesforce and then you can overlay. We have an Excel template inside of the vault that'll actually help you do all this with all the calculations built in. And you can put in all the data and then get these calculations and see what's really happening. And so what we're analyzing here, and I did this back in 2018 and saw the exact same effects. And I was trying to convince this company to invest less in scaling their sales team and invest more in creating demand because this effect was so clear and so obvious. Um, and so for instance here, you got request a demo and then you can look at some of the columns here. So you see overall gross opportunity volume, total lead volume, total close one. But then there's some calculated metrics like what is the win rate of a qualified opportunity to closed one by each of these sources? What is the lead to win rate? What's the efficiency of how many leads we create versus how many that we win, which the only thing that's happening between you generating 20,000 leads and your sales team winning 20 of them is your sales team sifting through 19,998 shitty leads that don't buy. So when you're passing a high volume of leads to your sales team that don't buy, all you're doing is burdening them with, with wasting their, essentially wasting their time. So that's a, the lead to win rate is a very interesting metric to see what's going on. It's basically like, and then you can start to plan off that if you can do it in a predictable way. And then the core thing here is pipeline velocity. Pipeline velocity uh, combines qualified the number of qualified opportunities, the sales cycle length, the win rates, and the ACVs into a calculation of pipeline or sales velocity, which effectively says how much revenue, how much close one revenue is moving through our pipeline over any given period of time. This data is calculated over a year, but you could do the exact same thing over a quarter, over a half a year, or any other type of time window that you wanted to. So some highlights here. Let's look at lead to win. You can see here, people that request a demo, the leads win at 7%. We typically see somewhere between 5 and 12% of raw leads become a close one opportunity through a request a demo form for a B2B SaaS company. And then you have web content downloads down here, 0.01%, one out of 10,000 people. They got 21,000 leads and they created 20 opportunities and they won two deals. This is not that atypical when you're running a high volume, especially a paid content download strategy or a high volume S like top of funnel SEO to a gated content. Like this is the type of result that you're going to get. And the two deals that you do win are typically like biased to attribution. You collect attribution on 21,000 people inside of your TAM. The odds of at least one of them closing are decently high. So I believe that this is actually more of an attribution bias than indicating that this program actually works. 
Um, then you can see outbound. There is no lead to win rate for outbound, but you sort of get a sense of like, what is the efficiency of all these sources, which then will illuminate where do we actually want to focus if we win one out of uh, one out of 11 requests of demos or one out of 13 requests of demos, but we win one out of a thousand or 10,000 content downloads. Do we even want to do con do we even want to do content downloads or do you just want to start to move people and guide them into the conversion that we know drives pipeline, high pipeline velocity and revenue. When I did this analysis, this is when we, we, we stopped create, uh, gaining content in 2017 because there's literally, there's like no, there's no companies always say that they're so data driven and there's literally no tangible rationale to do this. Typically when you look at the data, um, other things that sort of get highlighted sales cycle lengths, you can see like sales cycle lengths is meaningful. If you cut sales cycle lengths in half and you create the same amount of opportunities, you actually have a much, much more significant ability to drive more revenue because the deal cycles are faster. And you can see the differences here, request a demo 102 days. And this is real data, by the way, hundred and then outbound 173 days outbound deals are typically going to be longer than uh, request a demo deal simply because when you go outbound, the buyer has not demonstrated intent to buy. And when they request a demo, they've clearly demonstrated intent to buy, which indicates that they're further along in their buying process most often. And so you can use all this data and look at it and then formulate a strategy about what are what's actually going on right now. What are things that are not working that we should cut? Are there things that we should start to optimize against or start to move more money to? And it just starts a lot of these uh, interesting uh, initial conversations. So if your company is running a high, uh, predominantly a high volume like lead gen model, which most B2B SaaS companies still do, then if you're doing that, then this will illuminate what's actually going on and give you the data, especially when you start to frame it up in pipeline velocity and revenue and things that matter to a CRO and a CEO, you're going to start to get some understanding about what's happening and some buy-in to think about what, what would we need to change to get better results for our company. Which then leads us to a really, really interesting concept, a core sort of pillar concept inside of this whole framework, which is the concept of pipeline sources. So if you look back, we're gonna go back to this. If you look at pipeline sources, you can almost start to group the pipeline sources together based on the performance data. And the performance data typically matches the intent level of the buyer. So you can see here, request a demo and contact sales, both have similar sales cycle length, similar lead to win rates, because it's a buyer in both cases saying, hey, can I talk to your sales team about buying? So we can group those together and say, we call that, a, we call those a pipe conversion. So declared intent conversions through a website that's a buyer that fits your ICP that says, hey, I want to buy now. And all those different sources, you can either combine them into one, so you can eliminate the contact sales and move everyone into a demo, or you can combine them into one source, which allows you to start to plan and forecast in a much more predictable and accurate way way. So typically companies have somewhere between three and six total pipeline sources. What are the major aggregated places where they create a bunch of pipeline? Those uh, include when you separate uh, like what typically marketing delivers between low intent MQLs and declared intent buyers from a website. That's one of the core principles here is that because low intent leads win at typically 0.1% and declared intent conversions win at five or 12%, 50 to 100x better lead to win rate, that we need to be looking at these as two different things when we combine them and all, just call it all one MQL. It's easier to get cheap people that don't buy. And so 
the marketing team will always optimize for cheap, low intent leads, not expensive leads that convert in a much a more expensive, not expensive, but just relatively more expensive leads that convert at a significantly higher rate because of the, the confusion that volume is the answer. Efficiency, especially in the time that we're at right now, efficiency is the answer, especially when you have a scaling sales team. The productivity of that sales team as you scale becomes incredibly important. The marketing spend ROI and how customer acquisition costs can grow or scale over time. Like uh, a lot of companies are facing a lot of pressure during this exact moment because they're, they're, they focus all on lead gen activities, their spend is increasing, the conversion rates are decreasing, the overall demand in the market is decreasing, and they're just acquire, they're spending more money and they're acquiring less customers overall. And so then they got a sales team, and then they, you know, in 2021, they had their 20 person sales team and their sales team was at, you know, 60% quota attainment. And you turn around a year later and they need to lay off half their sales team because they're at 30% quota attainment and they don't have enough demand and their CAC is too high. So, um, Splitting out those two is one. You're going to have an outbound motion. If you have an outbound motion, one that's like, you know, contact database, cold, essentially cold call or like list by cold call. I would call that outbound. If you have one more that's like target accounts or intent data driven, you could actually separate these into two. You could have an intent data or ABX type of pipeline source and you could have a cold outbound pipeline source. And then typically other ones are going to be field or events and partner. So that you could have somewhere between, depending on the maturity of your company and your revenue model, you could, you typically have somewhere between two and six. And then when you aggregate these and you look at the data across these different pipeline sources, it creates a really interesting set of data. And this is a, co a commonality because the pipeline sources are a surrogate and are a, are correlated with the, the intent level of the buyer and how far along they are inside of the buying process. So if you're getting a buyer that's 80% of the way done buying, relative, you know, just arbitrary number, 80% of the way done versus if you cold call them and they're 10% of the way done, you're going to have higher win rates. You're going to have way shorter sales cycles. Your sales team's going to be a lot more productive. So by getting them further along into the process before they engage with sales can be, is a highly effective way to accelerate pipeline velocity. And so you can see here, they're different. It's sort of hard to read in this chart, but you can see different levels of sales velocity, qualified opportunity win rates. A really interesting metric that we look at is how many leads, quote unquote leads across all these different sources would you need in order to close one deal? When you look at that, it becomes a really interesting thing. And you're like, wow, I could hit the same, same revenue target by getting 13 people to fill out my request a demo form on my website versus getting a thousand people to download my piece of content. And so it, it's, this is a great way to get people out of the volume mindset, uh, that, that lead volume is the answer. Then you have lead to win rate and you can sort of see what is the sales velocity amongst all these different sources. Additionally, it allows you to focus. So like maybe you want to guide people to, to convert more inside of your website by implementing more of a demand creation strategy, which is where I ended up in my career because of this, uh, this exact effect that if we're able to figure out how to get more people to do this, it's an incredibly scalable model. Thank <laughs> you. 
A couple of other like core benefits of looking at it this way is that you're able to uh, plan and forecast in a really interesting way. I think it drives the right level of accountability across the teams. It's agnostic to whether this is marketing sourced or sales sourced. I fucking hate that conversation. This is not about whether marketing sourced it or sales sourced it. What it's about is where did the buyer convert and what are the sales velocity metrics that that for that pipeline source that got them in. And so it's not that marketing that the, since they convert on the website, marketing's responsible for that. And since they converted on outbound, sales is responsible for that. When you elevate and look at this as I'm a revenue leader, not a marketing manager or a marketing director, I'm a revenue leader, I'm a business leader. It just allows you to look at this objectively and say, where do I want buyers to flow through? Do I want buyers to flow through this pipeline source where our win rates are 8% and our sales cycles are 210 days? Or would I rather have them come through this pipeline source where our win rates are 40% and our sales cycles are 72 days? And so it just helps you look at it more objectively versus the emotional conversation about whether marketing or sales did it. So we're going to, we're going to get deeper into this right now. Um, I think some of the best parts of this is that it creates, creates clarity and focus. It creates a, uh, a top level view. So sometimes you see like, Oh, marketing's over here with their dashboards and the sales leaders over here with their dashboards and the CFOs over here with their dashboards. I've seen some, you know, hundred million dollar plus companies pull all do implement just this exact thing, pull all that data out, pull it into looker and be able to plan and, and track against plan across all these different pipeline sources and and have confidence that they're going to hit their target because of the way that they look at look at this. <laughs> so, um, introducing pipe the the core the core understanding of this is to separate the MQL. So if companies still want to like the data should show that you probably don't want to do this anymore, but for whatever reason, companies want to continue to run a high volume MQL hamster wheel with low intent leads that haven't declared intent to buy, then you can have a pipeline source for that. But you need to separate out qualified buyers that say, hey, I want to buy now. And you need to look at that in a different way because it's going to show you what you actually need to do. And it's going to allow you to have your sales team prioritize and potentially change your sales process for people that have already done a lot of that independent research on their own. And so what happens right now, companies mix them all together. So there's like 20,000, you know, 20,000 MQLs. You got a hundred people that ask for a demo that are qualified that actually want to buy. They all get mixed into a pot. They're not prioritized in a certain way. The ones that the hundred that do come through get routed to an SDR, just like a cold lead would. The SDR goes and does a, qual a qualification call with a decision maker at a target account that is declared intent to buy. And you're just creating a terrible buying experience that doesn't match where the buyer is in their process. And like I'm like I'm mentioning here, I don't look at this as a marketer. I look at this as a revenue leader. We need to be able to look at this across the whole spectrum. We need to look at the buy the buying experience, how we create demand, all the different components inside of it. And so we split these into two. And then pipe is focused on declared intent conversions from ICP qualified accounts. So that becomes one pipeline source. People that say, hey, I want to buy now, typically through your website, but it also could be through an inbound cold call, through a DM to your CEO or evangelist. There's a lot of different ways that a, a buyer could actually declare intent to buy from your company um, by, by saying it to someone that works at your company or filling out a website form. And as we sort of alluded to in the split the funnel analysis and other things, when you split these two things out between low intent lead gen and then the pipe framework that isolates declared intent buyers, you literally just see these disparities between, oh, like 
we do need to look at MQLs as two separate things. We might actually just want to stop our MQL model completely, which many companies do when they see this data. And if you layer on customer acquisition cost against the lead gen spend on top of it, and you, you start to show them they have a four or six month CAC payback on Google ad spend and content syndication and things like that, then it's pretty easy to dump those programs. Um, but it's like I mentioned before, and I say this a lot, it's so crazy. Like companies continue to pretend that they are data driven and then if they, but they never actually look at this data. I don't know if it's because they don't aren't, aren't looking at it the right way, if they don't have the right view, or if they actually have it and just decide not to act on it. But these are this is like obvious core data showing you that you need to make strategy adjustments. So then you can just separate these into two separate streams, which allow you to plan and optimize your programs against things that matter for your sales team and your business. So what are some of the reasons that companies would actually split these into two, which would allow them to either phase out their MQL model or just run two in parallel? Um, pipe unifies marketing and sales by connecting them with a with a pipeline metric that gets tied to a, a win rate. So marketing typically is scored on some type of volume metric, but no accountability to close one revenue unless they just report on the revenue that gets closed that they have attribution for. And so this creates a different distinction about what marketing actually has to deliver. I'm going to go into that piece, which is a core innovation in this in this framework. I'll go into that in a bit. It allows by optimizing for people that come to the website and convert. And then if you implemented self-reported attribution or other things, it simply allows uh, marketers to operate inside of dark social, dark social without requiring direct response lead generation activities, because you do the work inside of social and people come through and buy when they're ready to buy. And it creates a whole different way of looking at this system. Um, it improves the customer experience by engaging with your buyer when they ask to engage with you and when they're interested in buying, as opposed to talking to buyers that don't want to buy right now, which is in friction with the things that we talked about before. So just if you ask your customers what they want to do, this is what they would want to do. It's how a buyer would want to buy today in lieu of a, of a PLG or a free trial motion, which I get that many companies still don't want to move on that for a variety of reasons. It definitely scales better and faster than an MQL model. If you can look at this, like the difference between needing 13 leads to win a deal versus a thousand or 500, um, it just creates a whole different level of scalability. And then if you do need 500 or a thousand leads to win one opportunity, then the downstream effects of how much ad spend you need to get the 500 or a thousand, how many SDRs do you need to sift through those 500 or a thousand to find a needle in a haystack? How many meetings does your sales team go to that end up not buying that can, an SDR is able to convert gets comped on the meeting and then the buyer doesn't end up buying. So it creates a whole level of downstream implications to sales, which is by far the most expensive part. Companies only look at this of, oh, we spend $100,000 on Google. It's not a big deal. And it's like, yeah, but you have a bunch of salespeople that get paid 180 K that are not being productive because of the stuff that you're feeding them right now. <laughs> Additionally, it allows it, 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 it uh, challenges you to think about, do we need a, a different trigger in order to activate outbound sales, which historically has been, we're going to get an M we're going to get an MQL, a set of contact information for, for a pr prospective buyer from marketing. And then we're going to give it to our sales team. And that's how we're going to activate outbound. And that's a analog buying era strategy today. There's a ton of different triggers that you could use. 
You could uh, source intent data, fine tune that in, and then have RevOps serve intent data to your sales team and have that be the engine that activates outbound. And then marketing can take all that money and energy and focus and go and actually do things that are far more productive that create demand. So there's a huge element of changing it. Like in order to adopt this fully, you need to change the trigger of outbound. Otherwise, you're just going to shut off a faucet of leads and, and the SDR sales team isn't going to have people to call. This provides an alternative way that's typically higher productivity and more effective to activate outbound. And then overall, it, it improves unit economics when finely tuned. It would allow you to uh, reduce customer acquisition costs and other things blended across the entire business and from marketing specifically because of the efficiency of the programs. So this is a general view of what it looks like. Um, you see a majority of your market is not in market to buy right now. And that is so in that the appropriate action is to try and to create demand, to educate people on the things that they need to know in order to be to have a different consideration, a different perception about your company and your category. And then once a buyer demonstrates intent to buy, and this is just the, the pipe framework, we'll show this when it gets expanded with multiple uh, multiple GTMs running at once. And so you have a, the first step is a pipe conversion, which we, is a declared intent in conversion where your buyer, an ICP qualified buyer says, hey, I wanna talk to you about buying. So you could do that through a, when they convert some level of enrichment or a scoring model or a binary model in the ICP, not in the ICP in order to measure that. So you can actually just sort of like automatically or manually just take the trash that is not ICP qualified for whatever reason and just move them out. And then you just get left with people that are ICP qualified that said, hey, I want to buy now. When you actually fine tune this, a majority of the conversion should be ICP qualified. It should be like 80% or more unless you're doing the wrong activities to drive a higher volume of people through this form. The next step is actually converting that into a meeting. So a lot of companies, for whatever reason, still continue to have a buyer that says, hey, I want to buy now, and then pass that to an SDR, and then the SDR chases them around with a sequence and hoping that they get a meeting, and they convert those people into meetings at like somewhere between 20 and 30%. And so there's this whole amount, 70% of buyers that said, hey, I would love to buy from your company right now, and 70% of them don't even get into a meeting with your sales team because of how inefficient this process is. And so what we do is when the buyer converts, we uh, use enrichment, we see that they're qualified, and we actually serve them on the website a calendar, an open calendar where they can book their time with a sales professional at our company to talk about this. And so we do both of these steps at once, which then allows us to create a stage one opportunity for sales automatically. It makes attribution way more simple. It creates a better buying experience. It makes your data cleaner. There's a, a lot of different ways, a lot of different reasons to do this. But the key in order to do it is that you actually have to have people that want to meet with your sales team that have good conversations with sales. Otherwise, you're going to have a calendar link with people that aren't qualified booking meetings with your sales team and your sales team is going to be like, what are you doing? You're wasting my time. And then it becomes this key point in the process. And this is probably the most uh, the most important part of the process, um, which we're calling hero pipeline. And so uh, buyers that get through and they get to a deal stage that you typically that you win historically at greater than 25 percent, which then that's the goal for marketing. It's not about getting the conversion. It's not about getting the meeting. It's about getting opportunities to a state 
to a stage that have uh, that historically win at greater than 25%. And if the win rate decreases, then the state, the goal changes. And so I'm going to go through in a little bit more detail about how that process works. Um, and we're also, um, we are in the process of having a, we have a Salesforce package, a Salesforce app that you would be able to download in the Salesforce app store. And that is moving into a beta that does implements all this stuff automatically inside your Salesforce instance without impacting anything that you've been doing historically. So it sits on top of the infrastructure. So if you're interested in that beta, we'll be opening it up, I think, this week. So feel free to uh, drop a comment. And Todd, you can take a note of people and we can reach out to them. Um, and so you have this hero pipeline, which basically aligns marketing and sales against a, a sales centric, revenue centric metric. And you have close one. So it's not that much different than what you're looking at between like an out a different it's not that much different than a different sales funnel it's just calling out that this this specific one is buyers that are qualified that said hey i want to buy now and then if you thought if you looked at these in different ways you might create a different buying process for them right like we're not going to put a calendar link for our outbound deals or through events but because of the the quality and the conversion rates of this source we do have them book the calendar and we do have a different sales process for these people versus someone that we for instance went outbound for or met at an event Additionally, this can be fully integrated inside of your, your uh, existing systems without impacting anything else that you're already doing. So you can literally just all, like the core difference, separate and better define MQLs and separate them into two streams and then look at each different pipeline source, whether that's outbound or others in, in uh, specific ways versus mixing all of it together and then not being able to see the nuances based on where buyers come from. So this is an example just expanded about what I last discussed. You could actually have three of these happening in parallel. The create demand motion impacts and benefits all of them. You, you know that if you did effective demand creation and then you're, and then a year later you had your outbound team, your outbound team's doing better a year later once a ton, a ton of people know what your company does and what your category does and is interested in buying. Way more people are receptive to starting a conversation with you at an event, to answering and entertaining a cold email, to doing a lot of the things that, so demand creation augments all of these. So it's separating, creating demand and capturing demand, and then looking at when we're capturing demand, where, what is the pipeline source of where the buyer is coming from? And then you have separate, you could potentially have separate streams and separate sales processes or separate things for each different pipeline source if you wanted to get sort of like mature and complex there. We covered this in the previous uh, previous event, but I do want to just touch on it for a minute because it's a critical part of this framework working. When you move into a, hey, we're going to look at how much uh, pipeline revenue gets created through the, the, the website, high declared intent conversion on the website. When that happens, you need an all, you need a hybrid attribution solution because you're outside of this like direct lead gen mode. And so this becomes actually a 100% necessary thing. If you want to implement demand creation strategies, regardless of whether you implement this pipe thing or anything else that you're doing, if you want to create demand effectively and be able to measure it and, and have those experiments be successful, you must implement a different attribution solution or everything will, everything will look like it's failing. That's why every time I talk to a company, we tried the podcast, we tried this, we turned it off after three months because we couldn't, we couldn't measure it or we couldn't prove it. Just a constant story about failed experiments because they're measuring demand creation programs using capture demand tools and metrics. A couple quick fundamentals and how are we doing on time? 
Damn, actually, uh, <laughs> I'll go through a quick fundamentals, but I want to get a couple questions. And uh, so, yeah, that this has flown by. Um, so a couple of key things like this gets implemented on top of your existing process inside of Salesforce. You don't need to have this big infrastructure changes. You don't need to buy tech. You don't need to do a lot of stuff. It's actually quite a simple implementation. It doesn't impact your sales team. It does allow you to, to change how you report and change how you think about forecasting and modeling. Um, and that's one of the core benefits and reasons why companies would do this. Um, these are the, these are quick definitions. So um, a pipe conversion, just to be clear, somebody that comes to your website and declares intent to buy from you. Hey, I would like a demo. Hey, I want to talk to your sales team. Hey, I want pricing. If you don't publish pricing, uh, hey, I want to meet. Let me book a meeting with your team. Any of those types of, of conversions would be considered a pipe conversion and measured automatically based on the campaign source that's seen in Salesforce. A, qual a pipe qualified meeting is a meeting that gets booked from that source. So through the pipe, through the, the a pipe conversion that converts into a meeting, pipe qualified meeting, which should ultimately be by far the best meetings that your sales team has out of all the different meetings that get booked. These people are qualified. They ask to buy. It's if your sales team is not getting these meetings and saying, "Wow, these are the best people. Can you send me more of them?" Then something's wrong. This is a key part that I want to talk through about how you actually calculate your hero stage. The Salesforce app that we're building does this automatically. It analyzes all the data and then figures out how to do this and then updates it in real time. Um, but you could do this manually as well. And we've been doing it for years. And so by looking at all like a specific pipeline source, outbound events, uh, pipe, low intent lead gen, and then looking at the opportunity win rates by stage, typically companies are going to have a five or a six stage sales process. So in stage one, 4%, like whatever, you, however you define stage one, it doesn't matter at stage one, 4% win rate. And these are just examples at stage two, 15% win rate. And then at stage three, 27% win rate. The first stage that's greater than 25% becomes the goal of what your demand creation team, many companies still call that a marketing team, what your, that's the goal of what you want to generate in terms of pipeline. So a lot of companies say we're generating tons of pipeline in quotes, and they consider pipeline stage one opportunities that went at 4%. If your sales team's winning an opportunity at 4% and needs to talk to 25 people in order to get one closed deal, that is not a qual that is not pipeline. That's not qualified pipeline. It's not a qualified opportunity. So by using a win rate, win rate metric and forcing it, what happens is that most companies that run an M that optimize for MQLs or SQLs, their marketing team optimizes for stage one or stage two. And when you do that, tons of people get to stage one or stage two, fall off and never buy. And when you isolate that lead pool, you would actually see that. Um, and so that this becomes the metric. And then for instance, if a bunch of low quality buyers got into the pipeline and then the stage three win rate drops to 23%, then the goal becomes stage four for marketing. And that's what you consider pipeline in order to hit your goal and your target. By attaching the win rate, it forces alignment with sales. Okay. 
so quick things, what you can do. And then I want to make sure we get into questions right away. You can reference, I think it's podcast 315 and, uh, or the other materials and implement self-reported attribution straight away. It's free. It gets you tons of great insights and it literally is going to start to demonstrate to you what, how is our demand creation strategy working and what are the things that we're not measuring right now about what's actually happening and what's impacting our buyers. It's such a, that's such a low investment, high ROI thing to do. Um, then you could look at how we can actually s split out between our low intent MQLs. And you can do this by typically by primary campaign source. So you got low intent MQLs and pipe conversion that figure out how to split that inside of Salesforce. Um, you need to have opportunity stage tracking. So when a opportunity moves from stage one to stage two, you need to stamp the date of when it moved. So when an opportunity moves, this is a, a very easy RevOps solution that you could put into place in, uh, in HubSpot. You could do this in less than five minutes and then start uh, implementing a couple of other core things. So um, I expected to have more time and questions, but this has been cool. I'd love, uh, and if you got feedback in the chat, I'm going to read it too. So if there were uh, unanswered questions or things that you wish you saw or just feedback generally, would love to hear that as well. And uh, let's spend some time on questions. Thanks everyone. Okay, so real quick, two things. Um, if you were queued up for a question, do me a favor and raise your hand just because we have so many people in here uh, to make it easier to find you. And then two, if you want that beta, if you want to get on that list, uh, do me a favor and respond to the, the email invite to this event because there were probably a hundred plus of you that, that shot me a DM <laughs> and I want to make sure we get you all. So um, we'll start off with Sam. It's all, hey Chris. Sam, what's up, man? Good to see you again. Yeah, how's it going? Just, awesome. Um, a real quick question, probably twofold actually. So if you wind it right back to the start of the keynote, you talked about the analog buying era or the analog buying journey, sort of 2016, 2017, then we move into the internet buying journey or era, and now we're in the dark social phase. So what are your thoughts on A, where it goes next, and B, does it continue to evolve at the current rate that it has been doing? So... The short answer is I don't know. If you think about the analog buying era, the analog buying era existed from forever to 2016. So it was actually a very long era. Um, we'll see if that continues to accelerate and change. My expectation is that the the places and elements of dark social continue to get more scaled. There's different places to do it. And it becomes easier and more widespread for people to do it. And there's generally just more awareness from companies that it's happening. I yeah. expect that the, like the, the thing that people trust most is how do I, like what do people that peers that do my job as well say about these different things and solutions? I think that we might get to a place where there are, there are large scale data sets so it's not just me asking you for a recommendation or you asking me, but it's me going out instead of going to trust radius or G2 that had like people pay people to do reviews and a bunch of other things. If you look at Yelp and other places, like all those places are trusted less because they're pay to play and become a marketing ploy instead of a place to get uh, fair information. And so I expect that there will be some um, emergence that, that, replaces what a review site does for buyers, which creates large scale data sets about what do my peers do. So instead of just a one off conversation, which people will continue to still do, um, but I think they'll be looking for a larger scale of data as well. Awesome, man. Thanks for that. 
All right, next up, we have Maggie coming up. Hey there, Chris. Uh, great stuff. This has been really interesting and insightful. Uh, my question was around, I guess, for companies that are under a million ARR, which my company is, we are early stage and um, we're also dealing with category creation. So trying to put something new in the market. Um, we've hired sales, we've hired marketing, both smaller teams, but already seeing some of that friction <laughs> that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been kind of following, I would say, the old playbook. So just curious how, and I love everything you said. I'm just, I'm concerned that we don't have enough data to use mm. the framework effectively. So kind of any advice you might have for folks who are just starting out. Yeah. Um, so when you think about the pipeline source concept, like where, what, where are the places where a majority of your pipeline comes from right now? Uh, most of our pipes coming from events, uh, and trade shows. So like webinars that we're putting on and, uh, and trade shows. Uh, and then, well, I should say actually our pipeline, most of that's outbound. So outbound is definitely number one. Mm-hmm. And then anything coming from marketing has been events and, um, or like webinars and mm-hmm. uh, trade shows. Yeah. So you effectively have two core pipeline sources right now, which makes sense for the stage that you're at. Um, do you, uh, do you do either some level of like low intent lead lead gen or get people that come to your website and say, Hey, I want to buy now in any type of like volume? Yeah, we have almost all our volume from the marketing side has been that low intent, like content syndication stuff, Mm -hmm. which I have not been an advocate of investing in, but I'm uh, alone in that um, on the the leadership team. Um, We do have a form on our website, request a demo. I actually saw your note about uh, ask your people where you heard about, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they heard about you. We added that to our um, form last week or a couple weeks ago. So at least Mm -hmm. now we're getting a sense of where these folks are coming from. But the volume on our website for at requested demo is quite low. As well. Yeah, that makes sense. uh, All this stuff makes sense for where you are right now. Um, One of the things that I would have expected is that if you did run a high volume of uh, like this content syndication and things like that, and it gets immediately, whether through an MQL score or immediately triggered sales outbound actions that your sales team would come back and say, these people suck. Has that happened or no? Yeah. So it's interesting. All the conflict and friction you're talking about, we're in the middle of it right yeah. now. So we, we are making some leadership changes on the marketing side. Um, and those are in play and bringing in a new marketing leader mm-hmm. uh, who will hopefully help al- drive the alignment that you've mm-hmm. been talking about. The framework you talk about makes a ton of sense. It's just really clear because I think we're still trying to figure out how to create that alignment since we don't have it right now. So you're right. The sales yeah. guys are like, this is a waste of time. They're telling us everything you said. You've articulated it very well. Um, and I think we're at a point where our sales team might just be frustrated and yep. <laughs> ready to, to move on. And I want to obviously save that from happening and happening and drive a better efficiency in the go to market. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's so interesting. Many companies think that it's the, like a CMO problem, which often it is. But if you brought me in as your CMO and for the next pe- next marketing leader that came in here and you scored me on the goals that you had for your previous marketing leader, I'd fail too. Right? right. So it's almost having like a lot of marketing leaders are in a place based on how the executives measure marketing where they're guaranteed to fail. Um, so I would think about that as you work through your next leader and make sure that they come in on the way in and say, hey, this is what this is what we're doing. Like they have to acknowledge that this lead gen thing, high volume is not aligned with sales anymore. It's not at any company. So if they're saying stuff like that, then it means that they're not the right person. Um, a couple of other. I think they're saying the right thing. Our CEO is the one to convince. Uh, yeah. Like. So, yeah. Any advice on how do we affect change at the leadership level? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I would do a couple of core things. So the split the funnel analysis that I showed with the stacked up, like your data might be immature.
mature, but like, I imagine that you have some measurement to say these people came from content syndication or a demo request or other things. So if you have that, you can just stack them up and you'll see the same effect that I did with pure data. And you should do it for every single source. You'll be able to see outbound events, partner if you have it or other things. And so you, and then you'll be able to show like, Hey, look, and use pipeline sales velocity and close one revenue and lead to win. Cause these are the things that matter to executives and then, sh and then sort them by pipeline velocity and show that low intent lead gen is at the bottom. It will be, it will be one of the bot, like the lowest ones. And that with pure like business data shows, Hey, this is a place that we shouldn't focus. We should spend more energy over here. Pair that with the qualitative data that you're getting from your sales team, the friction that's being created and explain that the friction's being created because of this issue, because we want a high volume of leads that don't buy. We're measuring marketing to optimize for that when sales doesn't want it. Um, a couple of, so I think those, the using that data um, for both biz CRM data and what sales is saying are two really core, thi core things. A couple of other notes here, this is sort of uh, a little bit off topic, but wanna help at least from my experience. So um, when uh, my company, like worked on doing category creation. And we started that when we were about 2 million ARR. And that was in October, 2020. And in reflection, we weren't ready at all. And uh, so um, it's, I, this is more of an anecdote, but at least in my experience, I think that the much, there a lot of series A companies raise around and try and go into category creation and they don't, the org isn't mature enough to real and doesn't have enough customer insights or have enough time to develop the product to actually be unique. So it becomes more of just like a play on words that can't be delivered on sometimes. And so I feel like a, an appropriate time to look at this type of stuff is typically between 15 and 30 million ARR post B or C. Um, so that's just sort of a note. I'm sure that you, like whether it's a category creation or a messaging exercise, you should definitely do that, but be open to the fact that maybe like the, the whole category creation isn't the, it's not, may not be the right time. And we might actually want to be an existing market and then shift later once we have more time to develop the org. Yeah. We're evaluating that right now. I think that's great insight. Thank cool. You. Thanks Maggie. Great to have you here. So Chris, we still have several comments. We're at the top of the hour. What do you want to do? Let's roll for 10 more. Okay, cool. So Will Thompson, you are up next. Cool. Thanks, Todd. Hey, Chris. Hey, Will. Good to have you here. You, thank you. Thanks for having me. A couple of questions for you in terms of the actual like attribution modeling for the primary campaign source that you're using to sort of measure like is, is it a demo is it a you know low intent you know for me I would call that an ebook or a webinar you know mm -hmm. what, what are you setting up in terms of the actual attribution is that first touch is that last touch is that like you know hey they became an SQL and went to sales so we're going to stamp the primary campaign source at, at that date just wondering how you actually do that yeah. So I, I'll, I would encourage you to reference podcast number 315 that sort of talks about this in more detail. Um, but I will highlight a couple of things like the the old way of thinking about attribution. And like just so you mentioned, first touch and last touch is a is a very software centric model. And when you look at software centric, it basically tries to uh, it, it doesn't effectively look at the difference between creating demand and capturing demand. So our position in attribution is that you actually need two minimum two a 
hybrid set of attribution models that allow you to look at what's capturing the demand, which gets measured by software and is typically used at last touch before the opportunity. So, and the reason that we use last touch is because it's the biggest predictor of sales win rates and sales efficiency metrics. If the buyer comes in last touch and requests a demo, and if that demo came from a paid LinkedIn ad, or if that demo came from a um, a organic branded search, like those affects the, the win rates and things are going to be different based on those last touch sources. And if you ran the data, you'd see the same patterns that I'm, that I'm talking about. And so we use last touch on capturing demand, but honestly, whatever you're running in Marketo or visible, you could just inherit, you could inherit that. Um, and then the thing that's missing is what's creating the demand, which is why a lot of marketing innovation and a lot of the things that companies try to do that we do, uh, are deemed failing within a short period of time because they don't, they don't have the right measurement system to use that. We use self-reported attribution. Additional things that we've seen are large-scale market research surveys, qualitative customer interviews. There's tons of different ways to do it, but in order to get that data, you really need to effectively go directly to your customer and get it um, because the technological limitations of software are not going to effectively see most of those things, especially as we are very deep into a dark social era where buyers are doing a lot of these things in places that cannot be tracked because of the privacy policies on those platforms that are built to protect their users. So uh, if you have a follow-up, I'd love to answer, but that's sort of the, and I'd encourage you to check out the podcast, but that's the broad strokes. Cool. Thanks, Chris. Happy to help. All right. Next up, we have Neely Adkins. Hey, Chris. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, Neely, what's up, man? Good to have hey, you. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Hey, um, so... <laughs> I'm trying to uh, maybe divide this up in a way that my brain can understand it because uh, I can see after running through this analysis that an executive is going to look at, okay, why are we funding these channels that have such shitty uh, metrics as we get down the funnel? So uh, can you explain the difference uh, and maybe some talking points because content events, webinars, podcasts, those are going to have a, a lower win rate because those are demand generation channels. So you still need to fund those things to accomplish your demand gen goals, maybe not as effective as a capture and then start to talking. So can you clear, clear that up for me so that when I do go, you know, do this analysis of each of these channels, it's not immediately, well, we got to pull all the podcasts because that's clearly not doing anything for us or we're not going to trade shows anymore. Those kind of things. Yeah. This sort of goes on the same topic that, uh, that was just asked where it's like, um, you, they bucket everything in all programs into one and then measure them all against captured demand metrics. And so it really needs to be effectively split out and we need to budget and measure for how we create demand in one set. And then we have to budget and measure how we capture demand in another set. And so just because a pot like our podcast, actually, when customers self-report that they heard about us on a podcast that has the highest win rates and it has the best sales velocity, because it means that they've been listening to our information for an extended period of time in a long form way. Um, and so this for you, I expect this is a measurement and mindset shift one splitting them into two and then knowing that we need to look at them in two different ways and the second thing about thinking about um when a when a buyer decides that they want to buy then looking at the the sales velocity metrics and just op, like looking at that specific set knowing that demand creation needs to happen independently um so that's uh you good with that does that uh, resonate okay cool Thanks, man. Who else we got? Adrian. We got. Uh, hey, Chris. Thanks Stuart. for doing this. Great to have you here. Thanks. I've got uh, 
maybe more of a tactical question on customer journey. So for form submission, the enrichment data runs right away. And what happens to those leads who maybe don't meet the criteria of actually booking Tops calendar? Where do, and then maybe what's being done to make sure that there aren't some opportunities that should have gone through that the enrichment didn't catch? Totally. Yeah. So, um, companies can do this automatically if they like, so if the enrichment was there and it would present the cat, like you're deemed qualified and it presents the calendar. If not, it just goes back into the, the normal lead flow that gets fault, like routed and other things like that for a follow-up. So it just sort of like, um, it, it's comp companies that don't have a hot, like a high degree of confidence that all the people that are submitting the demo are qualified, like would use some type of tactic like this. Alternatively, you could just let every person book the, book the meeting if they wanted to, and then allow you let the salesperson decide whether they want to have that meeting, pass it to an SDR, send them into a free trial flow, send them a demo video, disqualify them. Um, so there's tons of different ways that you could do it based on sort of like what, what avenues your buyer has to buy, right? If you're selling a million dollar product and there's a, you know, company that's doing a million in revenue and they're definitely not going to be able to buy it, then probably like a polite disqualification would be, would, would work. Um, but, uh, essentially there's a, a lot of different ways to treat it. Okay. Thank you. Happy to help. All right. Final question. It looks like we have Jenna. Hey, Jenna. Hello. Hi. My question is, and I should say thank you for squeezing me in at the end. Uh, my question is around the language of the self-reported attribution. So for some context, we have had the, how did you find us or how did you first hear about us open box for months. Mm -hmm. um, and that's great because it's given us a lot of information that they're finding us through podcasts and stuff. But what it doesn't tell us, what it doesn't tell us is what content was actually getting them ready to buy. So for example, they may have found me on another podcast and gone and hit like on a couple of my Instagram posts and decided to, you know, come apply, uh, but they are not nearly as qualified as the people who heard me on a podcast six months ago have been listening now to my content for six months and are ready to buy. So I'm, I feel like I need two different questions. One, how did you find us? Yes. And two, what content got you ready to buy? What content got you to the place where you're ready to apply? So how do I word that second question? I would challenge whether you need the second question. I'll, I would invite you to put it on there to see what you learn. But my expectation is that like, if I ask that question for us, like people are like, I don't know, I've listened to 150 of your podcasts. Um, so it'd be, I think you should do it and you should, you should collect it. And if you were going to, I think it would be like, you know, uh, you know, it, how did you hear about us? And then what triggered you to buy? Like I would, I would frame it more like that. I wouldn't frame it around content. Like what, what triggered you to buy? And they might say we fired our CMO or we just raised a series C, or there's a lot of things outside of content that becomes a buying trigger. They know about you when they have the trigger, they're going to decide to use you, but the trigger is typically external. So I, I would, I would, uh, sort of move it outside of content. Another thing I posted this, uh, a couple of days ago, like, for whatever reason, marketers want to try and analyze the success of every single piece of content or every single different thing. And so like for David, for instance, like David has been probably at 200 of our events, which one of the events made the difference? 
<laughs> and so those, those are some of the things when you actually have an effective content strategy that gets produced consistently, like it's the, it becomes the aggregation of all of the different interactions and touch points that make the difference, not one individual thing, but because of how marketers have been trained from attribution and other things when they needed to see which ebook performed the best. That's where some of this mindset, which ebook or which blog performed the best. And that mindset has been carried over into social and other things that is a very different way of marketing. Um, and so I would, I would, uh, just sort of gentle nudge to, to think less about which piece of content drove it and more about how do I create a stream where people are engaged over a long period of time. Uh, interestingly, we do have a, what made you pull the trigger type question, nice. um, but just to clarify, um, we, I guess that my point is someone may have found me on an Instagram reel, but then they went and binged my podcast and that's what got them to be ready to buy. So that st statistically, if I just looked at the data, it says I need to go make Instagram reels, right? But actually what got them qualified was my podcast and the statistics may not actually be there. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? What, so how uh, would so I find here's, that? Yeah, here's what I would do with more context. I would add, like, if you want to have, how'd you hear about us and what triggered you to buy, you can have those on the form. But what you really need to do is have conversations with these people and collect deeper qualitative insights. What you're looking, what you're looking and trying to use in a form is going to get much, much better done through a like one-to-one -one interview. Um, and so you could do that. If you actually run the sales processes, then you could like, you know, sometimes you don't even have to ask people will just tell you at the beginning of the conversation. I was listening to podcast episode 183 and what you said was really interesting. And so that's why I wanted to talk to you. So sometimes people will just say it if you're on the sales conversation, alternatively, you could, you could figure out how to ask to surface deeper, uh, deeper insights. But I think there, um, the, the method of market research that you're using against the goal of the market research is mismatched a little bit. And I think you should, uh, think about other, uh, other types. Perfect. All right, everyone. It was great to, ha great to have you here again. If you were interested in either of the betas, the vault beta, which we have five more slots opening up in October or the Salesforce, uh, app package that we're going to start helping customers install, which helps implement a lot of these different frameworks, the dashboards, the visualizations, how the data gets collected in an automated way. And so if you're interested in trying that out, it is only available on Salesforce. So you need to use that as your primary CRM. Um, but if you do respond back to the emails and, um, and we'd love to, to uh, explore that with you. And then we, if you're on the wait list, you're going to continue to get these invites for invite only. We're going to continue to run it in sort of, sort of a similar fashion. I like, I think I like it, right? What's going on right now. I think it's cool sort of ad hoc, but it's ve like very data backed. So I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do this every week because we're putting together tons of data and slides and frameworks. So it'll be more spread out. Um, but I, I, when I switched from doing demand gen live, which is more of like me talking and while there was a lot of data back to it, it wasn't presented in a format that I think people could learn effective, uh, more effectively from. So we've sort of shifted it because I think this is what the marketing and revenue world needs right now. More data, more, um, more visualization, more frameworks, more ways to actually implement straight away. So I'm going to continue to push the envelope here and, uh, hopefully can hopefully have you back here so we can keep working together. So, I appreciate you all being here. Can't wait till next time. And I hope you have a great weekend. See everyone. Bye.